good to be with you. My name is Ryan Moore. If you brought a Bible, open it to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll be on page 553 of your blue hymn Bible. As you turn there, I just want to remind us of a couple of things. One, if you're joining us, um, our senior pastor and his wife, our children's director, are on sabbatical right now, and they return sometime in the first week of November. But I um, just want to remind us of that, keep praying for them, for those uh, who, who would, would think of them in that way, and um, pray for us as well, as we miss them. So if, if you're joining us as well, last week we started a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, last week we talked about really just what that word vanity means, and it's the word havel in the Hebrew. And, and what we said that it means is that this is life as we experience it under the sun, that life is frustrating. Um, it seems meaningless at times. It um, is a word that has a lot of range of meaning, but it describes how we experience life with God now that the fall has happened. And, and I say that to remind us that we are not reading from a book that is uh, seeking or, or perhaps coming from the vantage point of this is what life is like without God. That's not what Solomon's doing here. It's what you and I experience, Christian or not, Day in and day out of this world, under the sun. This is what life is like because of the fall. Um, as I was talking with a friend about this, one pastor talks about the, the book of Ecclesiastes as this sort of long walk into this deep, dark valley. And it's not a fun book, but it's a necessary book. It's one that, this is scripture. This isn't sort of an addition. This is scripture. Jesus wants us to know about this. And that's kind of one of the things we're after. But it's this long walk into this deep, dark valley. And this morning isn't going to be any different. In fact, my aim this morning is to get us to that valley floor. Because that's when we're able to finally listen. But we're going to do that, though, as as this pastor mentions, holding each other's hands. Okay? For comfort, to go down there together where we all need to go, where this book would have us go. So having said that, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's word. I'm not going to read everything printed there. I'm going to start in chapter 1, read verses 12 to 18, and then I'm going to um, cut into uh, chapter 2 at about verse 16 and finish it out. But I'll be quoting from it throughout the, the sermon. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom All that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Moving to verse 14, or 16, excuse me, 16. For, the, for of the wise, <clears throat> as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life 
Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person then that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his soul. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would meet with us, that you would give us your spirit, that you would teach us your word. And that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things. Otherwise, we could not. We ask this in your name. We pray all these things. Amen. <clears throat> I heard, heard about this article earlier this year and I forgot about it. And then I was listening to um, a sermon on a podcast and earlier this week. And it was brought back to my attention. I thought, oh, this is perfect. This is perfect. Um, because in the preacher game, illustrations are like, we don't, we don't give illustrations away, right? That's sort of what makes us valuable. Um, so I'm neither taking credit for this, but I did remember it somewhere, but Hey, it's, it's public knowledge, right? Um, there was an article written in the Atlantic, uh, this past February, and it was titled eating toward immortality. Diet culture is just another way of dealing with the fear of death. And this was by a woman named Michelle Allison. And in this article, she quotes a lot from a guy named Ernest Becker, who wrote a book called The Denial of Death, where Becker hypothesized that the fear of death and the need to suppress that fear is what drives much of human behavior. And so the article concludes that our food and diet culture specifically today uh, is really about one thing. It's about forgetting death itself. Forgetting about death, doing what we can to sort of uh, manufacture a life raft, if you will, through all of our dieting, all of our clean eating, all of our uh, veganness, all of our gurus, all of our fill-in-the-blank, paleo, or just I go to McDonald's, whatever it is. Whatever we do, we, we, we have carved out this sort of way of life because, according to the article, this is the newest and best way for us to really forget about death. And the article goes on in many ways to describe this. It's really interesting. It's fascinating. It talks about how it really just has become a religion. And maybe some people are feeling a little bit, hey, easy there, buddy. Um, But as I said, the article makes several great observations about this, and it talks about the freedom that we hand over um, in order to subject ourselves to these diets because we believe ultimately in the end 
this is going to extend life for me. Or this is going to change the fact that death is really present in my life. But she concludes this article saying this, and this is what I want you to hear. The only common thread between competing dietary ideologies is the belief that by adhering to them, one can escape the human condition and become a pure, less animal kind of being. This is why arguments about diet get so vicious so quickly. You're not merely disputing facts. You are putting your wild gamble to avoid death against someone else's. You are poking at their life raft. This is why diet culture seems so religious, the article concludes. People adhere to a dietary faith and hope that it will save them. Okay. If Ecclesiastes was being written today, this, is, this, is, this would be front and center of what the preacher would be pursuing as we read here in, in chapter 2. This would be front and center of one of the stops that he makes, that he sets out in his journey to prove that the fall isn't real. Our dietary, or if you want to call it, food culture. Along with pleasure, along with money, along with wisdom, along with sex, along with work. These things we all go to in life to find gain is what the pastor is saying to us. To find a way to rise above the fall, to forget about death. But in the end, something ultimately pokes at that life raft that we create or insulate for ourselves. And what do you think that ultimately is for Ecclesiastes? It is death. It is death itself. The one thing that we are trying so hard to forget about. So here's my plan for us this morning. As I mentioned, we need to get to the bottom floor of this valley. I want to invite you, along with myself, to allow death this morning to burst, to be the needle, if you will, to burst that life raft that you and I are using to insulate our lives, to pretend that the fall is not real, to act as though it is not a part of the world that you and I live. That's the invitation this morning. Sound fun? That you and I would actually begin to stop looking at life for gain. This is a huge word in this book, gain. One of the things that he means by gain is that there is something, you know, in a narrow vision, gain could be a profit, right? Like make, make, make some money on something. But it's broader than that. It is actually something that we can take away with from this world that, that allows us to rise above the effects of the fall. Life under the sun. To get away from it. To forget about it. I'm inviting you to allow death to burst whatever that is for you. And allow it to show you that there is no gain under the sun. There is only gift. There is only gift. And when we start to have that perspective in this fallen world, we can begin to find joy and meaning in the frustration of living life in God's fallen and broken world. This is the wisdom that will come to us in chapter 2. So three things there. <clears throat> what is the preacher doing? What did the preacher find? And what does this really change? What does this change for us? Okay. So what is the preacher doing? He is setting out to answer the question, does anything in this life under the sun really change life under the sun? All right. Is there something here that we can do or experience that in one sense elevates us above the Havel that we talked about last week? Above the frustration, 
Is there true gain that can be had here? And as we said by gain, is there a way that we can act and live as though the fall never really happened? Can we insulate ourselves from that? And so he sets off earnestly, mind you, on this journey to find out whether this is true or not. And we read this in chapter 1, verse 13, applying his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. And you'll notice in this chapter, as it moves into chapter 2 especially, that the preacher speaks primarily in the first person singular. This will be important later on. So the preacher goes on this journey to test himself. And what does that mean to test? It is an experiment of sorts. Right? It's almost as if I will take one for the team and I will go out there and experience everything there is to find out if there's answers to the questions that you and I are looking for in this world, namely to forget about death. Is there a life raft out there under the sun that we can jump onto, that we can insulate our lives from or with to, to, to protect ourselves from what we really fear and what we really, um, what really is the heart of all that is frustrating and meaningless in this world, and that is death. And so he sets out on this journey. And the first thing that he considers is pleasure. And why not? I mean, certainly, if, if, if this was our aim, certainly the pleasures of the world could be a place where we could find rest, where we could find relief. And so you get this sort of journey feel, right? That first he sort of takes us to the pub where drink and laughter fill the air. And who doesn't like a good party? Who doesn't like being with friends and laughing and enjoying celebration, right? But if, you know, if maybe if you're like me about your junior year in college, there comes a point where you're like, this again? How, how much can one drink and laugh? Right? There's got to be something more here. And so he, he moves on from the pub, as it were. And he goes out into these gardens. Right? He goes out into... He, 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 he pursues the beauties, the aesthetic beauties that this world has to offer. And he looks at the pleasures of accomplishment. How he built great things. Homes, pools, parks... But that this type of satisfaction, this, this ability to create and to, and to provide just wonderful, beautiful structures for people, did it, did it really satisfy him? It's as if at every turn, when he interacts with something under the sun, he contrasts it with, will death destroy this or not? <laughs> what a journey, right? Morbid? Well, perhaps. But remember, this is scripture, right? You have to keep that in mind here. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all agree that we should hear this. So he keeps going. From here, wealth, right? Silver and gold and treasure. He has it all. Finally, since money cannot talk or speak, he seeks the pleasure of a human, a woman here. He has his fill of sex and all that this brings. Of course, a little bit of what we know about Solomon. He had 700 wives. That should do it. Right, he, he has the experience here, and does this satisfy? It does not. What about fame? Oh, that would be certainly, right? Give me some moments of fame. He grew more powerful and successful than any other. In verse 10, he says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from their pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. But all was a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained. So what is he doing? Is the preacher trying to find meaning and purpose in this world apart from God? No. Now, is that something that we do? Certainly. 
We go after all kinds of things in the world to find meaning and purpose to fill that up. Thinking about drink and sex and work. All those things that, we, that are good things. We do go to those things to, to give us life. But that's not what the preacher is doing here. So his message goes a little bit further than this. For Solomon, finding meaning and purpose in this world apart from God would almost sort of be, well, that would be foolish. Why would anybody do that? But what he knows is that doesn't stop you and me from looking to the things of this world, pleasures as it were, to find a way to insulate from the havel, from the frustration, and and the apparent meaninglessness that comes from living in a world wrecked by sin. He knows that about himself. He knows that about you. He knows that about me. We try to construct worlds or bubbles for ourselves in order to forget about death ultimately. The cause of all that is frustrating. Another way to put this is we scheme. This is a word that will come up in, 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 in a lot of parts of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 7, verse 29. He says, see, this alone I found that God made man upright. But they, many men, have sought out many schemes. See, God made us one way, but because of the fall, we now go in search of many schemes, ways to pretend and protect ourselves against the realities of living in a broken and fallen world. For example, take the bubble that is money or wealth. Do we make idols of wealth? Absolutely we do. But money is also a way to insulate. Consider this, right? We believe that if we just have enough of it, we can insulate ourselves from the realities of this world. I can create a space in this world where I can rise above the sin and the mess and the frustration. I can move to this side of town as opposed to this side of town. I can go to these restaurants as opposed to these restaurants. I can shop here instead of here and get the good food and live longer. You see how this works. If I have enough money, my kids can get into these schools and this education and have this happy life. I can have this house and this thing that will ultimately fix life under the sun or at least remove me from it. The preacher is going for the jugular here, friends. It is an honest skepticism that he comes to on this journey saying, why do you want those things? Are you not aware of where we are living? Death will come and take all of it away. And then it'll go to somebody who didn't even deserve it. (laughs) There is nothing to be gained here. Stop it. Well, that's pleasure. What about the bubble of wisdom? Surely, if we educate ourselves enough and surround ourselves with the right people, we will find relief from this falling world. And the answer is nope. In verses chapter 2, 12 to 17, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. And then he goes on there, what happens to the fool will happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? This also is vanity, for the wise die just like the fool. The journey to seek out wisdom as a solution helps us to see his point more than pleasure because he tells us in verse 13 that there's actually more to gain in wisdom than folly. We will come back to that later. But his point is still the same in this journey. Just like pleasure, just like money, just like work, wisdom will not create a world where the Havel does not exist, where vanity doesn't present itself, the frustrations of living in a fallen world where death doesn't come in and destroy, where I'm able to rise above that. It doesn't exist. 
Because death ultimately comes in and it bursts every single one of our bubbles. This is what the preacher is doing. He is, again, applying his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun to see if there is anything to be gained to see if it really changes life under the sun. This is the first point. Now let's see the second. What does the preacher find? And this is what the preacher found. Nothing in this world changes or fixes the reality of this world. There is no gain to be had. There is no place to get where your significance and meaning happen because death destroys everything. So we have two choices. We can continue to to go through life using things like pleasure, work, and wisdom to insulate ourselves from the realities of this world, namely death. Or we can face reality and we can see what that effect has on our lives. What might death have to teach us about living in this world under the sun? The preacher suggests the latter. And he is saying that no matter what we do, death comes in to burst these bubbles <laughs> that we hide in. So it's best to face it now. Listen to what Gibson, on uh, his commentary on Ecclesiastes, says about this. He says, The preacher will argue that wisdom, pleasure, work, and possessions are very often the bubbles we live in to insulate ourselves from reality. And this needle, the sharp point he uses to burst the bubbles, is death. It is the great reality facing all human beings as they go about their business on earth. Death is the one ultimate certainty that we erase from our minds and buys ourselves to avoid facing. This is what he finds. But you might be asking, Ryan, I thought this was wisdom literature, right? Where's the wisdom or the insight here? If it is true that we do so much in our lives to avoid death, what happens when we face it and accept its reality? What happens when we stop using the things of this world for gain to insulate our lives, to get above the Havel, to get above the effects of the fall? What happens when we stop doing that and start changing our perspective on on the brevity of this life? How does it teach us to see? And what happens as we approach the valley floor is that we stop seeing and doing life as something to be gained. And we start seeing life as a gift, something that has been given to you. Gibson says later, by relativizing all that we do in our days under the sun, death can change us from people who want to control life for gain into people who find deep joy in receiving life as gift. And here's what the preacher finds. Seeing life as gift does not make this frustration, this vanity, this havel, this meaninglessness at times. It doesn't make it go away. Rather, seeing life as gift makes the vanity enjoyable. But friends, this is not the way the world views life, is it? You've spent six days. You've been subjected to nothing but gain, 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 gain. This will give you this. This will give you that. You can do it. This is the meaning of our lives in this world. But when we come in here, what are we told? We're told the complete opposite. And we know it's true that if we could just stop for a second, 
right? If we could just stop for a second, stop the control that we seek in life, stop the anxiety that comes from seeking that control, to stop from the busyness and the overcommitment that we subject ourselves to because we think that if we do all this stuff, we will truly gain something that will make all of this matter and give us significance. If all that could stop for one second, you know and I know that I might actually begin to enjoy myself. Isn't that when life is good? When there's just sort of this natural... When you stop white-knuckling it all the time? And the only way that we are able to do that, according to Ecclesiastes, is that we begin seeing life as gift and not gain. And this allows us not to get away from the vanity, but to actually enjoy life in the midst of of the vanity. <clears throat> but death has to teach you that, according to the preacher. And I'm not talking in the third person, by the way, I'm referring to Solomon. <clears throat> or, <clears throat> excuse me. Here's the truth all of our bubbles burst. And death is that needle. And you can try to carve out a life that fights this tooth and nail. Or you can go in search of, and you can go in search of many schemes, pleasure, work, wealth, and wisdom. Or you can learn from it. Verse twenty-two: What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? And the answer is not a lot. And if this seems too pessimistic or too dark, let me let me pause here for a second because this is important. If this seems too pessimistic or too dark to us, now you're getting closer. One. To understanding the sheer madness that is God himself and Jesus Christ choosing to enter this darkness. If you think this is too pessimistic and dark, the Bible is saying you have not reflected enough on the vapor, on the brevity that is your life. If you think that this is too pessimistic and dark, the Bible is saying you are possibly living this life for gain And the gospel wants to come into your life and show you that it is gift. And this brings us to another insight about this chapter. We love gain because that means we get the glory. If life is gift, that glory belongs to somebody else. If I don't save myself, the giver of that salvation receives the glory. Did you notice how much the preacher, though, talked about himself in chapter 2? It is riddled with I, I, I. The gospel of Ecclesiastes is making the point clear that gain or gift has everything to do with who is at the center of your life. If, if, if life is gained for you, then you are at the center of, the, of that life. And your life will look like a never-ending journey to satisfy and to scheme and to bring happiness to you. You may, or or excuse me, how many happy, satisfied people in this world do you know that that live life like that? I don't know any. I know a lot of miserable people that I have a hard time being around. And that might be one of those people for you, but that's another story. But if life is a gift, if if, if it's God's that he's given it to you, that means that he is at the center of your life. That makes all the difference in the world. According to Ecclesiastes, the Bible is saying to us, reflecting on the shortness of your life, and therefore the true gift that life is from God is the key to happiness underneath the sun here. 
And if you want joy and meaning in the midst of that vanity, you must begin right here. But death has to teach you that. And we don't, that's not a fun sermon. But perhaps by now we are getting to the closest of the bottom of the valley that we have ever attempted to travel. One more point. What changes? What, what does this change? How does this change us? In verse 24, we get the preacher's response to this journey. He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Note, this is the first time that God is mentioned in this journey. This sounds like a pagan creed, doesn't it? Or maybe a Dave Matthews song, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And many times we read this and we think he's saying do this because that's all that there is. So you might as well have at it. But that's not what the preacher is saying. He's saying eat, drink, and be merry because that's what there is. In other words, this is the good gift of God to you in the midst of the toil and frustration of living life under the sun. God has given us good gifts, good gifts to enjoy in this life under the sun. And the key to enjoying them is changing our perspective about this life and who we are. Because what we're going to see in a second is that the tastes of these joys, the tastes of, these, of this small goodness that he gives us in food and drink and sex and everything that, 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 that is of this world is a, large, is, a, is a taste of a larger reality to come. And so there is much worth and much value in taking the time to enjoy the things that God has given you, not because this is all there is, but because it's what there is, that he has given this to us to enjoy. It is, a, it is some, symbolic of his presence with us in the midst of the toil. And this is completely overlooked if we are living our lives for gain. When we start to see death and we start to see the vapor of our own life, we stop asking these good things, for example, pleasure, work, food, wisdom. We stop asking them to give us something that they never can give us, which is gain, which is a way to elevate above the fall. We stop expecting them to give us relief from what we ultimately are trying to forget, death. And we start enjoying them as the gifts that they are in the midst of this frustrating world that needs ultimate relief. So what changes? Well, first, death has the ability, as we've said already, to reorder our perspective in life. Namely, that we are creatures and God is the creator. And this should cause us to humble ourselves. We are finite. We are riddled with limitations. Everything at some point sags, friends. It is the reality of who you and I are. And you can embrace that. Or you can fight tooth and nail against it. But as St. Charles Barkley said that a friend shared with me this week, Father Time is undefeated. And he is right. Embrace it. We are finite and riddled with limitations, but God is, fine. God is infinite. And he is all-powerful. That alone tells us the folly of living life or gain with I at the center as opposed to gift with God at the center. Death tells us who we really are and this reorders our perspectives. Let it do that. Let it tell you who you are. 
You are a creature, friend. You have been created. And when that order is put back in place, life begins to have new meaning. It begins to be lived the way that it's supposed to be lived. So first, death has the ability to reorder our perspective in life. Death also has the ability to reorder our loves. Once our perspective is in line as creature, we can stop loving ourselves and we can start seeking only... uh, We can stop loving ourselves and seeking only to better our lives. And we can start loving others and loving God as well, which is the way it is supposed to be. This is the longing for Eden that's actually in your heart. The the eternity that God has placed in our heart that we'll see in chapter 3. I can tell you that most of the sorrow and the hurt and the emptiness that I have experienced in my life has come from loving me first and God and others last. When when, When I am my first love... Gain is my mission and purpose. And I bet it's yours too. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes 2 has run us to the end of the tape and he has shown us where this takes us. (laughs) And it's vanity, it's frustration, it's meaninglessness. So reordering our perspective and loves in this life turns out to be an exchanging of gain for gift. When we reorder our loves, we exchange gain for gift. Listen to Gibson one more time. He says, what if the pleasure of food is a daily joy that we ungratefully overlook? What if our work was never intended to make us successful, which is the gain, but simply to make us faithful and generous? What if it is death that shows us that this is how we are meant to live? Wouldn't it be incredible if you could view your work in any kind of work, not as a way to get ahead in society, but as a way to learn generosity <clears throat> and faithfulness. And perhaps you're asking yourself, well, why? You know, why, why do we care about generosity and faithfulness if death destroys and ruins everything in this life? And the short answer to that, as we'll continue to see as we go throughout this book, is that wisdom pleases God. It makes us also hospitable to a world that seems meaningless. But asking the question also takes us to a place that wisdom cannot take us. Since there is no gain here under the sun, we need, as it were, a new gain. That death cannot destroy. And this is where we see the gospel in Ecclesiastes so clear, isn't it? Jesus comes into this life to defeat death and to give us a new gain. He gives us living water in a world that is trying to fill itself up by drinking normal, hollow, empty water. It is in him that we find true relief. I'll close with a story that five years ago I went to uh, speak with another close friend who's a pastor out in Colorado to this camp and um, five years ago and May was they just turned three and we we had some breaks throughout the week and we got to go and drive and you know just kind of see Colorado a little bit in between when we were needed and um, and along in those drives as you're enjoying the, the beautiful country you begin to talk and this is a close friend of mine so we're talking and we're just kind of sharing and and this was a stage of my life as a dad where May, like I said, was three and hard and had just been born. And, um, and, and you know, May, May had just started to get personality. And she just started to really sort of show herself to me. 
And for, for months, this just created this depression. Because it was the, it was the first time, am I going to get through this or not? I don't know. It was the first time when I realized, oh, I don't want to lose her. And so I'm, I'm, we're driving, we're driving around, we're, we're talking about this, and I'm telling them this, I'm sort of crying, if you can imagine that. And I'm, I'm you know, just, just say, hey, this is where I am. And he has four daughters, and they're all older. So he's been there, and he gets it. And so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, having this moment, and I tell him how I feel about it. And he looks over to me, and he says, you know, you know the reality is, is all relationships end badly. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. All relationships end badly. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, <laughs> y'all ready for this? He goes, either you're going to die before May or May's going to die before you. I think we've made it to the valley floor. And he says this now, I'll, I'll say to you, one, don't ever say that to somebody. <laughs> or two, say that to somebody because it's true. My friend was preaching Ecclesiastes to me and I didn't like it. I sat there what seemed like eternity thinking over all that I knew that was true before he said that, but I didn't want to admit it. And I started getting frustrated. Is this some kind of joke? I started getting angry. Would, would God just create all this and do all this just so it would go away? It can't end like this. What's the purpose? What's the meaning? What is this for? I was having my life raft poked to come back to an earlier illustration. But then in a, in a few seconds later, I swear this seemed like an eternity. He follows it up with this. But that's why we need the resurrection. <sighs> right? That's the relief. That's your gain. And that is your gift. That is the living water that we need that even in and of itself reaches the farthest depths of the valley, friends. And God is saying, I have so much more planned for you. So much more planned for you than you have. Can you, you can even imagine. And I'm here with you in the midst of that. So enjoy the things that I've given you for this is not the end. This is not the end. I have living water to breathe into you, to give you through my son, Jesus and so we are to go about with that in mind, not because this life is just what there is. It's because it's what he's given us. And he wants that to point to the ultimate reality of what is coming for us. And he wants that to shape our lives, to give it meaning, to give it the joy. But you've got to get to that bottom floor to see it, to look up and to see the gift and accept it and receive it for what it is. And that's what Ecclesiastes is doing for us right now. It's not fun, but we're together, right? We're down there. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, even when we don't want to hear it. We thank you for the needles that you bring in our lives to break apart the ways that we insulate ourselves from what is true and what we don't want to talk about or think about. We don't want to think about the separation of relationship. We don't want to think about the failures and the, the, the perceived meaninglessness of our efforts and work in this world. But you breathe new life into all those things. You are our true gain because you are our gift. You give us yourself. Would we see that perspective through this book? And would that change the way that we interact with one another? The way that we go throughout this world and this life? And certainly as we meet at this table, we pray this all in your son's name. Amen.